0: Like to see Jesus firsthand? What would it be like to see Jesus firsthand? And the answer is it would be pretty cool. It would be pretty amazing to see him when he's doing his ministry, walking this earth. It's incredible. I mean, this is, this guy changed the world, but he changed Matthew's life. And so Matthew is giving us this firsthand eyewitness account of what it's like to experience Jesus for real. And it's absolutely blowing Matthew's mind because Jesus shows up to Matthew while Matthew is in the midst of his sin. Matthew's doing his own thing. He's away from God. He's serving Rome, serving himself. And Jesus says, come follow me. And Matthew's like, me? And Jesus is like, you. And Matthew's like, what would you want to do with me? And Jesus is like, I've got a plan for your life. And and Matthew leaves his sin, starts following Jesus, and the rest is history. His life completely transforms, and he is so careful to walk us through. He wants us to experience the same thing. So that's the book of Matthew. It's more than a book of the Bible. It's a personal testimony from a guy who wants us to experience Jesus for ourselves. And we've seen some incredible things up to this point in Matthew's gospel. We've seen uh, Jesus the first Christmas. We've seen Jesus overcoming temptation. We've seen Jesus teaching the greatest sermon ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount. We see Jesus performing really, really cool miracles, like undeniable miracles, and everybody's watching this being like, how could you do that? And Jesus is like, because I am God. I'm here for you. I'm God. And then, and then we've seen Jesus explain what the kingdom is like, and then last week we saw Jesus' own hometown not want to have anything to do with him, and because of it, he wasn't able to do much among them, and, and that leads us to today's passage, which is one of the most, I don't know, sad, depressing, disappointing, gross passages, and I would say gross experiences in Jesus' ministry. So Merry Christmas today, everybody. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters Christmas Edition. Ghostbusters. How many of you guys remember Ghostbusters? Like the original. Anybody remember the original way back in the day? Like this Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd. I mean, just I ain't afraid of no ghosts. You guys remember like that? Um, we're going to talk about ghosts here in a second. But uh, I was thinking this week, my son went to see Christmas Carol. Uh, at, went with a school to see Christmas Carol to play. And, and so I was like, oh yeah, that's the movie, you know, and he's, he didn't want me to spoil, or he didn't want me to spoil it for him. I was like, you've never seen this? You, you don't know the story? And he goes, no, I don't, I don't know the story. I, I don't know about it. I was like, why don't you, I, how do you not know this? And then, and then, and Jen's like, I've never seen it either. I was like, how, you've never seen a Christmas Carol? You've never seen a Muppets Christmas Carol? I, I mean, this is crazy. And so, if you are one of the 2% of people who've never seen this, um, it's, it's, it's a story visited by three ghosts. Uh, this guy, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. Come on, y'all. Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, past, present, and future. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But in our passage today, we get a little bit of Christmas ghost busting, okay? Jesus' ministry is on the move. Jesus' ministry is on the move. He is, he is making an impact. People are hearing about him. And, and as Jesus is on the move, this local ruler named Herod thinks that Jesus is actually John the Baptist's ghost sent to haunt him. And, but how many of you know Jesus isn't a ghost? It wasn't then, and he's not today. He is very much alive, and he's not out to haunt us, but he is out to help us. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That's exactly what Jesus is all about. And this passage is all about helping us understand that Jesus isn't to to hurt us, but he's actually to help us. And and it's fitting that we're hitting this around Christmas, even though it's not the most like warm, fuzzy passage because against this this dark backdrop, we will see the light that has come. Ghostbusters Christmas edition, Matthew chapter 14. If you're ready to jump in, say, "I I am. All right, let's do it. We're going to take verse by verse. I'm just going to go verse by verse through this because, man, this is, this is packed full of drama. Like, this is drama. This is, this is tragedy. This is a little bit of stuff that makes you, like, turn away. Like, this is just Matthew chapter 14, verse by verse. Here we go, starting with verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. Now, again, Jesus' fame is Spreading. People are hearing about this. In Mark's account of this story, so right, right, same timeline, Mark kind of gives us a little bit of extra commentary on this. Verse 12 says, "They, they went out. So he sends his disciples out, and they preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus is making an impact. He sends his disciples out to make an impact. And the word about Jesus is spreading, and it spreads to this guy named Herod the Tetrarch. Now, when you, when you read the Bible, you start, hearing, you start hearing about the Herods, okay? And it gets real confusing real fast because you're like, which Herod is which? Like, there, like, there's a bunch of people named Herod, so I'm going to do a little bit of a breakdown on which Herod we're talking about, okay? So let's throw up. This is a little Herod family tree. Herod family tree, it gets a little crazy. Herod the Great, he's the guy during the Christmas story who tries to kill Jesus because he's afraid that Jesus is going to take his throne. Remember the Magi, three wise men come, experience Jesus. You know, they're like, oh, where's, G- where's the king of the Jews? Herod the Great's like, wait, what? Like, he doesn't like people threatening his kingdom. In fact, so much so that Herod the Great kills his wife, kills his mother-in-law, wow. and kills his firstborn son all because he viewed them as a threat. So how many know Herod the Great? Wasn't so great. <laughs> That's, that joke's courtesy of Clint, who mentioned that in the back. Uh, right before service, Clint, I give you full credit for that joke. <laughs> At least in first service. Second service, you're not even going to be here, so I'm taking full credit. He has, he has a few sons, He has a few sons. One of the sons is Herod Antipas, third from the left. And and this is who we're talking about right here. He's also called Herod the Tetrarch, okay? You can see he's got a brother named Philip who was married to this this woman named Herodias, all right? And so anyways, we'll, we'll pick her up here in just a second. But when Herod the Great dies... He, instead of just giving all of the kingdom to his four sons, he divides it up. And so I'm going to show you a little map here, okay? I'm going to show you a map. This is, this is the map of, of the kingdom, and uh, you can kind of see that a little bit there. Um, it has a little bit of a Aladdin vibe, uh, the, the map does. But you can see, like, down in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and then the green areas are are the areas that Herod the Tetrarch had, all right, so actually this green area in Galilee and this orange area right here, these are the kingdoms that Herod the Tetrarch had, and you can see Nazareth is included in that, Capernaum is included in that, so this is where Jesus is ministering. Herod the Tetrarch isn't over Jerusalem, but he's over the area that Jesus is ministering, and so he he hears about it, and again, his dad isn't a great guy, and Herod the Tetrarch isn't a great guy either. He falls in love with his brother's wife, which isn't cool, right? That's not cool. So he divorces his wife, marry his brother's wife, and what makes it extra not cool is his brother's wife is also his niece. So Herod the Tetrarch isn't known for doing much. Like Herod the Great, he was a terrible person, but he built a lot of stuff. Herod the Tetrarch is just a terrible person. He's just a terrible person. Um, he, he's known for throwing wild parties, uh, trying to get more power, being pretty conniving. Jesus will call him a fox, and so in fact, he's the guy who meets Jesus when Jesus is under trial, getting ready to go to the crucifixion. He's the one who mocks Jesus, dresses him up in a robe, beats him up, says, "Oh, now look, hail king of the Jews." This guy is not a very good guy. And the big takeaway in all of that is he's not interested in God. Herod the Tetrarch is not interested in God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with God. In fact, his whole life is basically anti-God. He's living in contrary to God. So when Jesus is on the move, when God starts doing stuff in his area, Instead of being excited about it, he's threatened by it. He's afraid of it. And he thinks that it's John the Baptist's ghost come back to haunt him. Look, verse 2. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work within him. Now, pause for a second. If you've been following along with us in Matthew, we're like, wait, what? John's dead? We didn't even know that. John was just, a few chapters ago, He's in prison, but we didn't know why, and we didn't know, we didn't know that he was dead now. And so what we learn in this passage is why John the Baptist is in prison, okay? Why is he in prison? Well, Matthew goes back in time in this next verse, in verse 3, and shows us why John the Baptist was in prison, verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So you have Herod and Herodias. There's a lots of Herods here. You can just, it gets, a little, it gets a little tricky. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So John's preaching. John the Baptist is a bold guy. I mean, he calls out the Pharisees. He tells it like a T. I. is. That's John the Baptist. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is. He's like, listen, listen, Herod. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of title you have. You divorced your wife so that you could have your brother's wife, who is your niece. And it's wrong. It's wrong. And, of course, Herod doesn't like it. Throws him in prison he wants to kill him. Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill him. Wanted to kill him. Wanted to do it, but he didn't do it. Why? Because he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. This is really interesting. This, this, little, this little insight into who Herod was, what he was about. He, he wanted to do something, but he didn't do it because he was afraid. He lives in fear. He's got to keep the people happy to a degree. He's got to keep the emperor happy to a degree. He's got to keep his wife happy to a degree. And he's spending lots of energy trying to keep himself happy. So he's pleasing everybody except one person, the person he needs to be pleasing, and that's God. And because of it, he lives afraid. I want us to see this. It's very linked together. Because he's trying to please everybody, including himself, he lives in fear. He lives in anxiety. He goes from one endless pursuit to another. And his birthday party is a key example of this because he throws another wild party and it gets just a little out of hand. Look at verse, chapter six, or look at verse six. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest's and pleased Herod so much. Again. Let's think for a moment. Sometimes you just read the Bible, right, and it just goes by. Can we stop for a second and think what's happening? Let me think about this. This is the daughter of his new wife slash ex-sister-in-law slash niece dancing for him who would make this girl Herod's stepdaughter slash great-niece. And she's dancing for Herod and the guests. And the implication, based on Herod's response and his lifestyle, is that she's not doing a ballet. (laughs) There probably wasn't many plies happening. Okay? It's sensual. And it's his stepdaughter. This guy is gross. And watch where his grossness leads him. Verse 6, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Mark's gospel tells us that he said, you can ask up to even half the kingdom. This is weird. Isn't that just weird? I mean, it's just weird. Verse 8 says, prompted by her mother... She said, so her, she goes to her mom, and Mark's gospel teases out a little bit more. If you want more commentary, read Mark's account of this. And Mark's gospel, she goes to her mom, Mom, what should I ask? And then, and then her mom's like, give me John the Baptist. And so, verse eight, prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter. In fact, Mark tells us right now the head of John the Baptist. What? This is a party this is this is this is a birthday celebration and it's got lewd dancing uh, the alcohols flowing and and now they want to kill the prophet verse 9 the king was distressed he's afraid again he lives in constant fear but he but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's hypocrisy all over the place because how many of you know Herod the Tetrarch isn't necessarily a man of his word? He's not, a, he's not like, oh, I'm a man of my word, so I said it, I'm gonna follow through. No, it's all about people. It's all about image. It's all about what someone else thinks. And because of this, he is going to a place that he never thought he would go. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Weird passage. Sad passage. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Merry Christmas. I do believe that this is this is a this is a powerful powerful passage because it teaches us some stuff. It teaches us some stuff, it teaches us some stuff about where do we put our trust. What do we allow to drive us? And I believe that that we can walk away better because of this. Number three things I think that God is trying to teach us in this passage. Number one, unchecked sin will take you places you never wanted to go. Number two, if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. And number three, respond to God's spirit as soon as you can. Three things I think that will. That if we'll just open our heart for a second, God will use to strengthen us through this passage. So before we jump in, I want you to turn to three people and say, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Come on, tell three people, I ain't afraid. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. will <laughs> be stuck with you all day. You're welcome. First of all, unchecked sin will take you places you never wanted to go. Have you ever been driving and you're, you're getting ready to, like, you're on the highway and you're getting ready to change interchanges? And, you know, praise God for Google today, but sometimes Google can be a little deceiving because it's like, take this road, slash this road, slash this road. You know, what? like when they do the slashes, and you're like, which one is it? And, like, sometimes it doesn't tell you right until you get up, up to the road, so if you don't know where you're going, like, which one, which one, which one? And then all of a sudden, recalculate it. Or like you just start spinning like, ah, I think it's this one. <laughs> and then you get, on, you get on the road, and yeah, you realize it's the wrong road. Next exit, 20 miles. You're like, no. <laughs> Have you ever been stuck going in the wrong direction? And you're like, ah, oh, I didn't want to go here. And yet this is where I'm going. This is what unchecked sin does to us. It takes us in the wrong direction, it takes us places we didn't want to go. This is the nature of sin. I mean, think about this guy for a second. Herod, he cheats on his wife with his brother's wife, who is his niece. Then he has his daughter perform erotic dances for himself and his guests. He should have been protecting his stepdaughter. And yet now he's exploiting her. I mean, even HBO is blushing at this. Here's the reality. How does this happen? Herod has seared his conscience. He's seared his conscience. All of us have a moral compass. All of us know what's wrong and what's right. And yet we're born into a sinful nature. So we know what's right, but yet we have this sin nature that's that's pulling us in the wrong direction. And if left unchecked, it's going to take us places we didn't want to go. It's going to take us directions that we didn't want to go. And that's what happens here with Herod. This guy keeps going further and further to where he's promising half his kingdom and killing a prophet he didn't want to kill. He's distressed, but it's his legacy and he can't stop it. Why? Oh, because one sinful moment got carried away. But what I want to draw our attention to is that that sinful moment, how many of you know this, didn't start in that moment? How many of know that sinful moment started way over here? When he, when he compromised for the first time and got away with it, didn't get struck by lightning. He was like, I compromised, and I'm still here. Okay. Okay. Then the next time, compromise, temptation, whatever it was, I'm still here. Then compromise, maybe, maybe it was the first glance at his brother's wife. The first flirtatious, uh, flirtatious moment with his brother's wife. And get struck by lightning. Still here. Then again, then again, then again, compromise, and he's searing his conscience. And what was not even on his mind before, now is his reality. It's one moment after another. And he finds himself in a place that he never thought he would be and he's distressed but he can't do anything about it because it's where his decisions have led him it's how sin works it's how sin works it starts small and then it grabs a hold of us James chapter one the brother of Jesus says this but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then, sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. It just continues. It's it's like, ah, it sounds so good. And then enticed. And then grabs a hold of you. And you compromise. And you do the thing you know you shouldn't do. And it drags you away. But you put yourself there. We put ourselves there. It's one little compromise after another. Imagine if we could go back and rewrite history. Imagine if we could go back and be like, Herod, no, 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 no. What you need, you need, a, you need an accountability partner. You need someone to challenge you. Herod, what you need is you need to get in church so you hear the word of God and you can respond to it. Herod, you need a small group. Imagine if Herod would have had a small group where someone could say, What are you doing, man? How many of you know we all need people in our lives to say, hey, what are you doing? But when you have all of the authority and all the power and you can make all decisions and you've isolated yourself and insulated yourself where no one can challenge you and no one can speak truth to you, how many of you know you are in a very dangerous place? This is where Herod finds himself. He finds himself Compromising. And then he kills John the Baptist. Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is right here. It's all hidden throughout the passage. It's fear. Who do you fear? Because if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. If you fear God, you have nothing to fear. See, Herod lives in this constant state of fear. He's afraid of losing his position. Because it's, it's his identity. He's afraid of what the emperor thinks. He's got to keep him happy. He's afraid of what people think. He's got to make the people, he's got to placate the people. He's, a, he's afraid of what his party guests think. He's afraid of what his wife thinks. He's afraid of John the Baptist. He's afraid of Jesus. He's, he's afraid because how many of you know he's, because sin, he is given into sin. Now he has been driven by fear. Fear is the enemy's tactic, Fear is what the enemy wants to bring into your life. Fear of what people might think. Fear of what people might say. Fear of getting caught. And, and that's where the enemy wants us to live. That is a restricted place. That is a limited place. Fear is the enemy's tactic. That's why Halloween, you know, how many of you know Halloween isn't like, oh, this is, you know, it's the, the holiday of, of hope and encouragement. No, it's the holiday of fear. How scary can we make you? I took my kids. We got got some candy and this dude was running around in a Freddy Krueger mask scaring people. Like, and he came up right by my car. Dude, I was ready to go nuts on him. (laughs) But that's, we celebrated it because that's the devil's day. It's fear. When the enemy shows up, it's, He wants to make us afraid. God does not want you to be afraid. God does not want you to be afraid of anything. Because look at 2 Timothy says this, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. God wants you to live free. God wants you to live full. God wants you to live strong. God wants you to be an overcomer. That's God's will for you. But the enemy wants you Afraid? So what's the answer? If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Let me show you this fear of God in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want wisdom? Fear God. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom, your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. And if you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. I can't help but think of Herod. If you're a mocker, he's a mocker. He will mock Jesus. And he's suffering because of it. And yet if you fear God, you, you have nothing to fear. Solomon, at the end of his life, at, again, a, a depressing book, Ecclesiastes. But at the end of the Ecclesiastes, he will say, what after he's gone on all of these meaningless pursuits, he will say, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. When you fear God, you have nothing to be afraid of. What does this mean? Well, in the first passage of Proverbs, the the word fear is yirat. It means to respect, reverence, or piety. You know what fear, as it relates to God is? It's saying, God, I am so in awe of you I so revere you. I so recognize that this whole thing is from you and it's about you that you will have all of me. I'm not gonna live for me. I'm going to live for you. I'm not, I, 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 I I would be afraid of you, but you've made it so that I don't have to be afraid of you. I can be in awe of you. And I am going to live for you. We all have a decision to make. Who are we gonna live for? And the way we make that decision is by responding to the Spirit's voice because the Holy Spirit wants to speak to all of us. And this is the last thought. Respond to the voice of the Spirit as soon as you can. As soon as you can. Herod did not like what God was saying through John. How many of you know that God was speaking to Herod? He was living in disobedience, and God was like, listen, turn from that. I, want, I have a plan for you. That's not right. But Herod didn't want to hear it. How many of you know it's not fun to be told you're wrong? It's not, it's not like, oh, that's so enjoyable. But how many of you know it's the best thing for us if we are wrong? It's it's the best thing. And and so, what Herod does is he numbs God's voice by putting John in prison. How many of you know it's easy to numb the voice of God? I I really believe God is speaking constantly. He's speaking through people, He's speaking through creation, He's speaking through His word, He's speaking through His spirit. But we numb His voice with all kinds of stuff, just make ourselves numb. Just make ourselves numb. I don't want to hear. I want to hear. Just make ourselves numb. Just watch another episode. Make ourselves numb. Just get distracted. Make ourselves numb. Whatever your, whatever your, your thing is, you just do that and you make yourself numb. So he numbs the voice of the Spirit and then he kills John. And here's what's interesting. The next time Herod has an encounter with truth, not much was said. Do you know the next time Herod's gonna have an encounter with truth is when truth incarnate will stand before him. Remember, he's, Jesus is gonna go to the cross and he's brought before Herod. And, and, and the Bible says, In Luke chapter 23, when Herod saw this, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he'd be wanting to see Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign or a miracle. It's like, Jesus, do something cool. Can you do something, Jesus? I just want you to do something. And he plied him with many questions. But watch this. Jesus gave him no answer. Why was Jesus silent? Was because Jesus didn't want Herod to repent? No, he certainly wanted to repent. It's just that Jesus knew that Herod had already made his decision, he'd already made up his mind. He didn't want God. And here's the reality in life and in eternity, God will give us what we want. Do you want him? If you, if, you, if you do want him, you will seek him and you will find him. But if you don't want him, he'll let you have what you want, which is life away from him. The spirit's voice calls out, but at some point we numb ourselves to it. We numb ourselves to it. See, the worst thing in the world is not to be convicted by God. The worst thing in the world is not to be convicted by God anymore. See, if you're still sensing like a conviction, then you're in a good place. You haven't numbed your heart to God yet. But if you're so justified and so hardened in your position, then man, you better be like, God, change me. Hebrews 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then skip to verse 15 says, as just has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The reality is you can so harden your heart that the voice of God can't get through. I I want to ask us today, have we done that? Have we continued just to make decision after decision after decision after decision? We're just pushing his voice away, pushing his voice away. We got away with it. We got away with it. Pushing his voice away. No no struck by lightning. No struck by We just push his voice away, push his voice away. And God is calling, saying, turn. Turn to me, and you will find life, and you will find freedom from fear and anxiety and and living for yourself. That's what God wants for us. Here's what's interesting about Herod and Herodias. They actually don't, Herodias doesn't live much longer than this story, maybe six years. They both end up in exile because of a of, of a different situation. So they live in exile and they don't live very long. Crazy. Think about this. They traded their souls. They traded their legacies. They traded their eternities for a few more years and exile. And they're constantly striving. And they get nothing. You say, Scott, this is, I'm so glad I came today for this encouraging Christmas message. I think about, I thought about a lyric From one of my favorite Christmas songs, O Holy Night. Long lay the world. In sin and error, pining. It's probably not a word you use every day, pining. But that word means the act or state of yearning or longing or of gradually failing in health or vitality. That's the world. Long lay the world. Just struggling just pining and losing strength and losing life every step of the way till he appears and the soul feels its worth. A thrill of hope and the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Christmas is all about us being in our brokenness and our sin, pining, trying to just be like Herod. Because you say, who could do something like Herod? Who could promise half their kingdom away? You know who could? You and me. And we do. One decision, one pining decision after another. But God is reaching out today. He's saying, Turn. He's saying, turn and let me in and the weary world will rejoice. Amen. Amen.